Before we get started, we want to thank our Patreon supporters and remind everyone that as a nonprofit, we rely on your help to keep making Big Biology. To support us, please consider making a monthly donation to our Patreon page at patreon.com bigbio, or instead make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org. We'd really prefer not to sell energy drinks or mattresses to keep the episodes coming, but we need to support our interns, producers, and other staff, most of whom are students. A different but also very important way to help us out is to spread the word about us. Recommend Big Biology to a friend or a family member, or just share your thoughts about shows on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We want to get these big biological ideas out to as many people as possible, and social media is a great way to do that. It also helps if you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and comment on and rate our show. And of course, if you want to hear a particular guest or an episode on your favorite topic, or just have questions or thoughts about past episodes, get in touch. You can do that on our social media pages or through email addresses on our website. Now here's the show. In early 2018, Regina Atieno left her house near Lake Victoria in Kasumu, Kenya, to fetch water for her family. Her husband, Evan Zodiambo, had just returned home from work and greeted her as she left the house, taking his then two-month-old baby from her as she walked to the lake. After about a half an hour, Regina hadn't returned home, so Evans left the baby with his daughter and went down to the lake to look for his wife. When he arrived, he saw the basin that she used to collect water floating a few meters from shore, but Regina was nowhere in sight. Over the previous several months, Lake Victoria had swelled dramatically. Torrential, persistent rains had caused the banks to overflow, in some cases flooding the homes of people living nearby. Wildlife relying on the lake also suffered from the heavy rain. Hippos, snakes, and other species fled the rising waters. But with the banks of so much of Lake Victoria so developed by humans, their flight sometimes put them into close contact and conflict with people. Such seems to have been the case for Regina Atieno. Days after she went to collect water, her remains were found not far from her house by the Kenya Wildlife Service. She'd probably been attacked by the large crocodile that her neighbors had tried to scare away around the time of her disappearance. Sadly, events like these are becoming more common. As our climate keeps changing so dramatically and rapidly, usually for the worse, humans and wildlife are coming more and more into conflict. Droughts are forcing predators to move into urban areas in search of food, and changes in ocean temperatures are causing baleen whales to move into highly trafficked areas where they're hit more often by boats. In addition, interhuman social conflicts, traceable to climate change, are leading to more and larger problems with regard to wildlife. For instance, as population sizes of wildlife used for food or natural products decline, they've become ever harder to capture. One unfortunate result is that human traffickers have started to supply enslaved adults and even children into poaching rings. For instance, recently in Thailand, men have been increasingly sold to fishing boats. Sometimes these men remain at sea for several years without pay, working 18 to 20 hour days. High demand for some precious wildlife commodities also exacerbates human-human conflict in the form of terrorism. Ivory, for instance, has recently been selling for $3,000 a kilogram, and rhino horn from $60,000 to $100,000 a kilogram. Fanatical groups like the Janjaweed, the Lord's Resistance Army, Al-Shabaab, and Boko Haram fund their operations in part from poaching and illegal trade. Some residents in affected areas, especially where government efforts are weak or ineffective, are starting to deal with these issues themselves. In Senegal, for instance, fishermen are now sometimes taking guns on fishing trips, not to hunt for fish, but to protect their catches from thieves. On today's show, we talk with Brianna Abrams, a professor at the University of Washington, about her work on human-wildlife conflict. Brianna has worked on conflict in many species, largely focusing on how climate and human social factors are exacerbating it. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of good news here. 
the problems are large and numerous, not to mention fraught because so many impoverished people rely on wildlife for their livelihoods. We spent a lot of time talking with Brianna about the biggest current conflicts and what she expects to see in the future. But we also focus on some success stories, what people and agencies and governments are doing that works. We spend time on what Brianna calls dynamic management, an approach that holds promise by integrating perspectives of many stakeholders and experts, from biologists to economists to politicians and the public. And we close with a discussion of what we as individuals can do to reduce human-wildlife conflicts. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. And this is Big Biology. Brianna, thank you so much for joining us uh, on Big Biology today. We're really excited to talk about your research and advocacy for wildlife conservation. But let's start with how you got into science in the first place, and in particular, the kind of work you're doing now. Well, first, let me say thank you so much for having me. It's really, really, I just love the podcast. So it's really an honor to be on. I mean, I think I knew that I wanted to do science when I was, you know, four years old. I love to do like little science experiments on my dog at home. And I just, that was just the thing I was attracted to always was just learning how the world worked through science. But the path to biology was actually really circuitous. I mean, I always really had a, a love and an interest for animals and would collect National Geographic magazine articles on, on animals and things like that. But I actually had no idea that there was a career path in studying wildlife. I don't know about your experiences, but my experiences in high school biology, it was cellular biology, it was, you know, organelles and things like that. It, it wasn't, um, it wasn't ecology. It wasn't how is uh, how are ecosystems functioning as, as a whole? So it just wasn't even on my radar as a as a potential career path. And I also really loved astronomy. And so um, when I got to college, my university didn't have an astronomy program, but it had a physics program, and that was kind of the closest thing. And so I ended up being a physics major and really had this dream of doing, you know, being a physicist with NASA or like, you know, especially when I was really young, um, I had this dream of being an astronaut. And at some point in college, I think it was my third year, I got this really kind of dream internship at a NASA research center um, doing, doing physics research. And it was just a complete dream come true. And when I got there, it actually was a pretty disillusioning experience. And it just, it wasn't it didn't kind of have the like sparkliness of the word of the of the acronym NASA that I kind of envisioned. And I realized that even though the big picture research question was really interesting that I was working on, which is essentially how does space radiation propagate through different materials, including human skin, because we the team I was on was working on designing more effective um, shielding materials for the International Space Station. So sounds like a great question. Yeah, like a really cool basic research question of how do particles propagate through other particles, essentially, in space, uh, and then also really applied, because then how can we translate that into providing astronauts better shielding materials when they're out? But the day-to-day the -day kind of research process was just really not enjoyable at, at all. And there were some other things about it that that didn't really sit well with me. And then senior year, when I came back, 
I just kind of on a whim, I took an ecology class um, because I, I just had a sense that I would enjoy that. I had never been exposed. I wasn't even aware that ecology really existed up until that point. And that just, I mean, it was like falling in love. I mean, just the, the experience of studying, going from studying electrons to studying animals that you can actually observe in your real life was just really incredible to me. And I, I really owe it to this one professor who taught that ecology class and he taught um, conservation biology and he taught an animal behavior course. His name's Dan Perlman at Brandeis University, so I'm giving him a shout out. Um, <laughs> he just totally, totally changed my life, honestly. And I finished out the physics major, but from there I was like, I'm definitely going to do a switch over to ecology and pursue that path. And so the next four years after college, I spent kind of traveling around doing different field positions restoration ecology, you know, forestry sciences. Um, I spent six months in Argentina um, on a project studying penguin behavior. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, and that was a really valuable experience too, just kind of figuring out what it was that I was passionate about and what I wanted to ask when I went back to graduate school. I'm I'm smiling because your trajectory is sort of weirdly similar to my own. I did, I did not have a NASA internship, but I did go to university to major in physics and I started down that path until I took a couple of physics classes and sort of realized that I was out of my depth and <laughs> like, I just, I was not going to make it in physics. Um, and so I was casting around for things to do. And because some of my friends were taking biology courses, I thought, oh yeah, I'll take, I'll take intro bio. And it was like this click moment. It was just like, oh my God, this is it. You know, I love it. And uh, so I didn't, I didn't quite go as far through physics as you obviously. See, but. Art, I thought you were going to tell her that four years that you spent living in a penguin colony. That's what made you guys more <laughs> yeah, I, I wish, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, I, I really hear you on how we teach biology to undergrads too. I think like too often these courses start with like molecular and cellular biology and Sorry, molecular and cellular biologists out there, but it's just a lot more interesting. You can tell better stories from ecology and evolution. And and so I, I do an intro bio course and I start at the other end. I start at like, you know, the ecology evolution end and then we work down to lower levels of organization a after that. Our intro bio series at UW now has a, a pretty big co ecology component, which I'm really excited about. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I think also just the complexity of ecology, it's all about relationships between things that applies so broadly to so many other things, you know, economics and um, public health and, and things like that. Well, let's scope the problem that takes a lot of your attention now, human-wildlife conflict. It's a multi-billion dollar uh, per year problem, major losses of biodiversity as a consequence, substantial loss of human life and livelihood. But give us some examples of the kinds of conflicts that, that you've been thinking about and that people are, are most worried about right now. Sure. So human-wildlife conflict is kind of this catch-all term for conflict between people and wildlife that, that tend to be direct interactions um, that have a negative outcome for either people or the animals. And so that takes a huge variety of forms. It can be um, having vehicle collisions with deer on highways, which I'm sure many of us in the United States are familiar with. It can be um, carnivores attacking livestock. I have done work in Africa for about 10 years, and um, that's something that's a huge problem there both for people and for for carnivores because another big problem with 
carnivores attacking livestock is that then people understandably retaliate and try to remove the problem by removing carnivores and killing them. And so that's um, detrimental to people's livelihoods and it's detrimental to carnivore populations. And we've seen global declines of carnivores all around the world in a large part due to human wildlife conflict. And that's certainly something that we are we have in the past and are increasingly now struggling with in the United States with the, for example, the return of wolves, where we have a lot of conflicts between wolves and ranchers. In the earlier 1900s, there was a huge effort um, in the United States to essentially wipe out large carnivore populations because they were eating our animals. And only now in recent decades, since the establishment of the Endangered Species Act, we're now actually seeing carnivores return on our landscapes. And that's really exciting from a conservation perspective, but also creates huge challenges for human wildlife conflict. So those are, those are a few examples and those are land examples, but we also have conflict in the ocean. Um, so we have, you know, ship strikes to whales. That's a problem that I've been working on for the last few years. We have whales or other, other animals, um, sea turtles and other marine mammals like sea lions getting entangled in fishing gear. So that's a huge, highly prevalent form of human wildlife conflict that often goes by another name, which is bycatch. So you've um, also made the case that that a lot of these conflicts are getting worse because of climate change. So what about climate change is driving intensification of those interactions? It's really two things. I mean, so climate change, what we see is we have long-term change. Um, so a really prime example of, my, of that might be um, sea ice decline, which is a long-term process. Um, and then we have an increasing frequency and severity of extreme climate events. So we have increasingly strong and frequent hurricanes or droughts. You know, droughts are more severe, they're lasting longer, and they're happening more frequently all around the world. And from both of those things, long-term change and the increasing frequency and severity of these climate events, we have associated rises in human wildlife conflict. And we're seeing that in such an incredible diversity of different animals involved with this, different systems, different parts of the world. It's really happening all over the place, but it's kind of being reported as these single events or, or single case studies. And what I have been wanting to do um, more recently is to, to kind of shine a light on, hey, this is actually, you know, this isn't being talked about that much, but this is, there's actually so much evidence that this is happening. I can give you a couple of examples if, if that's helpful. Yeah, this, you mentioned in the, in the science paper drought effects in India back in the 80s and uh, more recently in Botswana. 2018, I think it was. So what in particular was going on there? Yeah, there have been some really um, interesting and, and kind of scary instances of droughts creating these big conflict events. So the one that I mentioned in India, there was a really historic El Nino, an incredibly strong El Nino that occurred, and that created a, a very severe drought in India in the 80s. And two things happened during that. First, the drought essentially killed off a lot of the vegetation that was in some of these forests. And in India, human-elephant conflict is a huge problem. I mean, elephants are incredibly large, dangerous animals, and they kill people every single year. What happened during that drought is that the, the kind of natural food sources of elephants went away during the drought. 
And so there was a large population of elephants that essentially left their protected areas where they were living, dispersed into more human-dominated areas looking for food. And caused havoc. Yeah, caused havoc, raided on, um, you know, raided on crops because that was an a available food source. And a really natural response of the villagers who experienced this was to try to drive those elephants away. And that actually led to an increase in elephant attacks on people. And so there was, in the years of that drought, there was a really uh, rapid rise in fatal attacks by elephants on humans. So it can really be a life and death situation, both for people and for wildlife. And then that same drought um, also saw a, a similar kind of response from lions where the food sources for lions also decreased during that drought. And so lions increased their attacks on livestock. And in a similar, a very, very similar story, lion attacks on people increased to over six deaths per year following that drought compared to one lion death per year um, before before the drought. So it was over a 600% increase. So you're, I guess I would think of droughts as sort of a, an extreme event that arises from climate change. There's also sort of long-term changes in mean, mean conditions. So if we had to sort of partition those into changes in mean versus extremes, what do you think are more important for driving the, the conflicts? Oh gosh, that's really interesting. I guess there are... M- more conflicts that I come across that are a response to an extreme event, but I can't say that that's because that's simply because that's the biggest driver. It may just be because there haven't been enough long-term studies that have really looked at the effects of long-term climate change. And it's probably also more noticeable, right? There's some extreme event and people pay attention, like what's happening to the wildlife, yes, right? Elephants yes. are showing up in your field. Yeah, I think it's going to be yeah. more conspicuous. <laughs> right. But I can, I mean, I can give you a couple interesting examples, I think, of like long-term climate change increasing conflict. Um, so, so long-term climate change has made it so that in the Arctic, sea ice forms later in the year and it dissolves earlier in the year. So basically there's there are shorter and shorter periods of the year where more of the ocean is covered by sea ice. Polar bears rely on sea ice during certain parts of the year to essentially fish for food and they, you know, they kill seals and they eat seals. And being able to do that from chunks of sea ice is really important for them to be able to hunt successfully. So as sea ice has declined, um, we've seen a kind of concurrent decline in the ability of polar bears to to find and access food. And in turn, what polar bears are doing is instead they're spending more time on land, and on land is where people live, and they're looking for alternative food sources. And those alternative food sources are often um, found in human areas like garbage dumps, backyards, things like that. And so over 30 year time period, there was a study that showed in Canada that polar bear human conflicts that have involved either polar bears being shot and killed by people, um, by people being injured by polar bears, by property damage by polar bears have tripled over the last 30 years. And there's a direct correlation between the number of polar bear conflicts and how long or what the freeze date of sea ice is. And so, so are more polar bears getting injured or killed as a result of these conflicts? People just shooting them to drive them off? Yes. Or? And now it's actually gotten to a point where we're starting to see human polar bear conflicts level off somewhat. And it's because the polar bear population 
has been declining because of these conflicts and because of loss of food. What what about the bears learning? Like, do they learn that it's dangerous to go near humans eventually? Yeah, that is a that's a great question, and it seems like they they must. I, I mean, lots of animals are well aware of the risks of being near humans, and a lot of animals avoid avoid being near humans. But then you have this trade off, like. At some point when your hunger takes over or when your when your physical needs take over your fear um, or, or surpass your fear, that's when you're going to make riskier decisions. Um, and so that's what it seems to be happening with the polar bears is that they're, they're kind of overcoming their fear because they're essentially starving. It's similar to us, right? Like we make decisions, we make decisions differently when we're hungry. Yeah, for sure. Make many more bad decisions (laughs) when I'm hungry. Right, exactly. (laughs) You know, we don't, we don't need to make this too much worse, but I am curious, you you mentioned climate change having direct impacts on human populations and demographic changes, development of land. Are there more things to worry about new types of problems that are arising as these factors come into play for human populations? And what does that mean for conflict. So yes, it's not just about animals changing their behaviors. In some cases, it can be about people changing our behaviors. Um, And so we see that on on small scales with, for example, um, when it's really hot outside, people are more likely to go swimming in the ocean. And we see increased, you know, rates of shark bites on hot days, you know, there's that correlation. There was a another like strong El Nino, I believe that was in the 90s, that saw a huge rise in shark bite instances. And that was because a combination of both people, you know, spending more time in the water because it's so hot. And also because of that El Nino, um, it also shifted where the habitats were for, for white sharks and it brought them closer to shore. So it was a change in behavior of both people and the sharks that led to that. On a On a broader scale, we're also seeing things like as we get declining sea ice in the Arctic, we're opening opening up new shipping routes and we are having record numbers of ships traveling through the Arctic now that never used to do that, even 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And that is creating all sorts of new conflicts, you know, increased risk of ship strikes to whales up in the Arctic that never existed before. So um, it's happening on small scales and on, on large kind of global scales as well. So let's talk a little bit about what people and agencies are doing to try to mitigate these conflicts. And I want to I want to read a quote of something that you wrote in a this perspective recently in Science that the state of California implemented a risk assessment and mitigation program that assimilates climatic, oceanographic, biological, and economic indices to inform what you're calling dynamic fisheries management to reduce the risk of whale entanglements. So so let's talk about whale entanglements and what does it mean to have dynamic management. That risk assessment and mitigation program, which I'm just going to call RAMP, that's kind of how it's known, it was in response to this massive rise in whales being entangled in fishing gear that we saw between 2014 and 2016, and it actually extended for a few years past that, when there was a massive marine heat wave off of the U.S. West Coast. And so this was actually a really historic event. We really have never had this many whales being entangled in fishing gear on our coast before, and it was in direct consequence of a um, record marine heat wave. Uh, That was the largest marine heat wave um, in the Pacific Ocean on record. And um, essentially the marine heat wave changed the ecosystem. It changed what food was available for whales. 
um, whales shifted their distributions to come into greater contact with fishing gear. At the same time, the marine heat wave also created a harmful algal bloom that made um, it toxic conditions for crabs to grow. And so the, the crab fishery was delayed um, by several months and the time that it finally opened actually perfectly overlapped with when whales were migrating on the West Coast. So it was kind of this perfect storm of events of both increased spatial overlap and increased um, temporal overlap that led to this rise in whale entanglements that was caused directly by this extreme climate event. And what what's really neat, I think, about the, the California's Risk Assessment and Mitigation Program is that it now tries to be a little bit more proactive about taking into account okay, what is the climate doing? What is the ocean doing? What are whales doing? Uh, what are people doing in terms of fishing? Bring all that information together to assess what is the likely risk of whales being entangled this year, and then make decisions about when to open and close the fishery based on that risk. Yeah. So, so what I hear you saying is that like, instead of having a plan, like this is how we're going to manage a particular population, it's actually a much more elaborate plan with a lot of contingencies that try to integrate sort of economic and, and climatic sorts of data into the decisions about what to do in a particular year. Is that, is that a fair assessment of, yeah. of what you mean? Yes. The key is that it's dynamic. Yes. Right. So you make the decisions based on the data coming in that year. Right. Yeah. So instead of saying, okay, every year the fishery is going to open on, you know, November 15th and close on February 15th, we're going to say we are going to bring in new information all the time to update our decisions about when to open and close it. So can you tell us, like, be more specific about how this is going to happen? I'm, I'm really intrigued and, I mean, I guess excited and happy that a policy can be so labile because that wouldn't seem to be something that a lot of people would, would go for. And I'm sure, you know, it's going to take a little while for fishermen and other people to embrace it for the for the positive effects that it has. But is there some sort of prefabbed algorithm that exists that data are plugged in and a decision is made? What, what are the, how are these decisions made to get to shifts in the date for the open and the closing? So I don't believe there's like a particular algorithm, but I know that they bring in at least three different data sources. One is whale concentrations. So if there's a certain number of whales in the region of concern, then that may trigger a delay or an opening. If there's been a certain number of whale entanglements that have already happened, that often will trigger a closure. They also bring in climate indices and some colleagues at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, have developed something called a habitat compression index. And that basically says, how likely is it that whales are gonna come close to shore based on how compressed their habitat is? So I, I don't actually know if there's like a particular kind of threshold in that that's going to trigger, but I know that that's one of the data sources that, that come into this, as well as things like sea surface temperature. Is it a particularly warm year? Um, because we see that whale distributions tend to become pretty wonky in those like really hot years. I mean, I just, it's so compelling because it's, you know, it's hard to operate when policies are labile like that, when these, when these thresholds, I mean, it's a wonderful way to do it, but it seems quite difficult to execute yeah. and manage. Maximizes and, yeah. the pain of the, 
decision making yeah, and then some right one or two people end up getting the, the blame can be more clearly attributed to a person making the decision as opposed to an existing policy so can we turn to to this paper that you wrote back in 2014 with brashears and add yet one more component to these stories um, about decline of wildlife populations themselves you know if if climate change is exacerbating changes to wildlife population health and affecting human wildlife conflict there should be all sorts of social problems for humans and wildlife populations um, at the beginning of that article you write about obama's interagency task force on wildlife tracking and one facet of that was the sort of a, a war on poaching let me quote you again the harvest of wild animals from land and sea provides more than $400 billion annually, supports the livelihoods of 15% of the global population, and is a main source of animal protein for more than a billion of Earth's poorest inhabitants. So Obama's initiative to start a war on poaching had major unintended consequences for humans and wildlife. Some well-intentioned policy didn't work out. Is that Am I getting that right? I think really what we were trying to say in that paper is you can't just address the symptom you have to address the underlying cause. And when you have something that's like, okay, the, the symptom is we have wildlife trafficking. That's the symptom. And that policy, that war on poaching policy, tries to address the symptom, which is stop trafficking. But really to do that, well, first, you have to recognize that that trafficking is happening for a reason, and that reason can affect the livelihoods and the lives of many, many people who are relying on wildlife for, for food and for sustenance and for income. And secondly, that you're not going to ultimately solve this problem by just targeting, let's, you know, let's stop these poachers. We need to be thinking about the underlying causes of why wildlife trafficking is happening in the first place and how it has how wildlife declines are a root cause of this and how that creates all of these societal problems um, that we talk about in order to, to really kind of solve this problem in a way that um, aids conservation efforts, but also um, is socially just because the main people who are being harmed by wildlife declined are people from marginalized communities to begin with. And so, you know, they're the ones who are the most vulnerable and can also be also the most vulnerable to unintended consequences of policy actions. So let's, let's lay out some of those unintended consequences. So this paper was all about the, the fact that when you have wildlife declines, which we're seeing all around the world, that it has all of these unanticipated consequences for social conflict. And so an example of that is we made a connection between wildlife decline and increased child labor in several parts of the world. And so in parts of the world that rely on fisheries for either food or for income, we have seen collapses of fish stocks all around the world. When that happens, the fact that fish are harder to find in the ocean now needs to be made up for an increased effort. So Maybe before you would get all the fish you would need by being out on a boat for one day. Now maybe it takes five days of fishing to get the same amount as before. And that can be really costly to have people out on boats. And so to make up for that increased labor need, there has been an increase in people being forced into labor. And that includes adults and that also includes children. So we have seen a rise in forced labor in fisheries um, in several parts of the world. We talk about Thailand specifically in this paper. 
Um, and we also see that happening on land as well. So we talk about in West Africa, how there has been a depletion of wild animals that have have kind of historically been food sources for certain communities in West Africa. And as those wild pop animal populations have been depleted, people need to spend more time um, going out hunting. And that has also has also come with an increased rise in child labor. So, you know, that is just one example of a societal harm or conflict that is occurring because of wildlife decline. But we also talk about things like vigilante governance, where you have increased piracy of people protecting natural resources that are scarce in certain waters. Somalia is, you know, a really classic one where we see lots of piracy happening. And we also see that wildlife trafficking, which can be really lucrative if we're talking about things like ivory, that kind of economic exchange fueling some terrorist groups that we've seen in, um, in Africa. So a lot of this paper has a very international focus, but, you know, fish stocks have declined in, in U.S. waters. Actually, I would say U.S. waters are, are fairly well managed. We actually have pretty sustainable fisheries in the United States compared to other parts of the world. But it certainly creates a lot of conflict between people when we have things like whale entanglement shutting down fisheries and people not having access to their livelihoods um, as they have in the past. And so some of the things we talk about in this article are still applicable closer to home as well. So, so let, me, let me ask and try to draw a line between what I see as two distinct things that we're talking about here. So one of them is, is declines in populations and that driving this necessity for extra work and then that resulting in forced labor of adults and, and children versus the anti-poaching efforts of this initiative and the bad effects of that. So those, those seem like two different things, right? I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't the anti-poaching effort actually cut down on the decline of the populations that's causing a lot of these problems. So why has the anti-poaching effort been problematic? So we don't, we we aren't really saying that the anti-poaching effort has created its own problems, but we're saying that it's not really in itself going to solve the underlying problem. You're putting a Band-Aid on it, whereas we're not really actually solving the, the underlying drivers. Yeah. So, so if you could rewind back a few years and, you know, organize a group of people to write an initiative that would actually encompass all of these issues, like how, how would you do that? And what, who would be the stakeholders that would have to be at the table? Um, gosh, yeah. I, I mean, it has to be interdisciplinary. I mean, I, I'm a wildlife biologist um, or an ecologist. And so um, you need people there at the table who understand animal behavior, how animals respond to changes in their environments somebody who understands how wildlife populations cycle, you know, over time, but you need so much more beyond that. So you need, you know, people who understand um, human demography and what are the drivers of changes in human populations and economists or political ecologists who may be able to speak to the likelihood of people switching livelihood strategies based on availability of resources. We talk about in that paper some particular um, disciplines that need to be involved in this, which would include like human rights advocates, um, political ecologists, you may be criminologists who study, you know, things like how the wild, illegal wildlife trade works and um, crime syndicate, how crime syndicates are involved in that, because it's a, it's often these very complex international organizations 
some of my colleagues from UC Berkeley, back where I did my PhD, have shown how at least this one study that I believe was in Kenya on Lake Victoria showed that when people were feeling sick, they tended to use um, easier to use fishing gear that tended to not be specific to the specific type of fish they were trying to fish for, but grabbed pretty much everything in its path. And so just like really, you know, could devastate entire fishery communities. So, you know, public health comes into play and then and then certainly economics as well. Yeah. So this is super interesting. And I, I just want to stay on this kind of stakeholders issue for a moment, because what, what I hear you saying is that it's like this ultra complicated problem and we need sort of highly integrative and highly interdisciplinary approaches to solving it. And I'm like super on board with that. Like that really resonates just with the way I think about the complexity of the world. But at the same time, I can imagine a group that's that diverse and that complicated with that many interests would have a really hard time ever arriving at a concrete policy. So so how do you do that? Yeah, um, gosh, if I needed the answer to that, I would probably be trying to do it. But, um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I think that, I think you also need politicians, obviously at the table who can, who can guide people to, to these kinds of things. But, you know, there are examples of this happening. I mean, the, the ramp is an, is an example of, you know, bringing in really interdisciplinary um, types of data, climate, biological, socioeconomic data, and then creating policies based on such a diversity of different data sources. And so it is possible, but I think that you need we just need to be having more um, interdisciplinary conversations, and I and I think that there's there's interest in increasing recognition of the value of that. So, like we have U.S. funded initiatives like um, the National Center for Ecological Analysis and, Th- and Synthesis. There there are just these like there's a lot of funding going towards synthetic centers that are intended to be interdisciplinary. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, can we talk a little bit about these sorts of success stories? You wrote about um, the structure of Fiji's fisheries being sort of oriented around territorial use rights. I mean, that is one of the specific examples you give about effective management. So what can you tell us about that one? Sure. Um, so the the idea there is that you need strong governance of resources in order to not let essentially things like piracy crop up. So if you don't have a strong government who says, okay, all of these people have access to this shared resource and we're going to regulate how that happens, if there's not strong governance, then somebody who somebody or some group is going to take it into their own hands, right? And often that happens by force. And that's what we've seen, for example, in Somalia. What um, some countries like Fiji have done that have been really successful is to essentially divide resources up and say, okay, we're going to give this area to this community and this community is going to manage it themselves. And we're going to take this other area and give it to this other community. And therefore, um, local communities have agency over how to manage their own resources. So that's what we talk about with Fiji. I'll also say I work in Botswana and um, where I work in Botswana operates very similarly to that on land where Botswana has these um, kind of wildlife management areas and local communities each manage their their own wildlife management area separately and can choose whether to have mainly 
um, photographic tourism or hunting tourism on their land and how many tourists they allow and how many lodges they allow and you know examples like that that put the natural resource management into the hands of local communities can be can be really valuable and give more agency to to those um, you know communities that are the most vulnerable and also the most reliant on their natural resources. So it sounds like what you were talking about before when I brought up President Obama's war on poaching idea, and and then you you know mentioned that it was about the symptoms instead of the grander underlying problem. What is this sort of conventional approach now? Do do we still tend to treat symptoms, or do you sort of see the tide turning that there are these more sort of what is the base cause effort? We are starting to treat more of the base cause. What what we're talking about in that paper is we're saying a root cause of many of the, not all certainly, but many of these social conflicts that we're seeing is wildlife decline or decline of natural resources. And that is an underlying cause that needs to be addressed. And um, there are certain initiatives like the 30 by 30. I don't know if you've heard about this, but like there's a there's a really big push to protect 30% of the world's land by 2030. That that's really explicit about saying, look, we're in a we're in a global biodiversity crisis. We're in the sixth mass extinction right now um, because of human activities, and we need to reverse that. And so let's, you know, take some bold actions to try to stop the decline of wildlife around the world. And so if, if efforts like that are successful, that's going to help mitigate these kind of social conflicts that we see, even though that, that's probably not the, the main goal of these kind of efforts is to, to address these social conflicts, it's going to be a, a positive consequence of that. There's also increasing initiatives and efforts and just awareness of the issue of human wildlife conflict and that that is such a huge issue that needs to be addressed. So, for example, the United Nations Environment Program and the World Wildlife Fund just put out a huge report that's basically calling attention to human wildlife conflict as like the one of the biggest threats to biodiversity on the planet and also a huge threat to human well-being and sustainability. The IUCN, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, in the last few years created a human wildlife conflict task force to try to connect people around the around the world trying to work on this problem. And so, you know, I think it's it's getting a lot of attention. And I think there's more and more efforts to try to address this. Yeah. Let me ask then about I think it's possible that listeners are thinking, well, what can I do about this myself? Are there things, actions I can take or decisions that I can make that would help to resolve some of these things? And you know, that, that's like an intimidating thing to think about, right? Because these are big, super broad problems and, you know, involve lots of people and with lots, lots of different interests. So are there things that individuals can do that would help? I mean, really, one of the biggest things that people can do is vote and vote to support policies that are going to protect natural resources or support policies that aim to mitigate climate change effects. I, I obviously, I, I think a lot about climate change and we're, we're not at the brink yet. We, we still, you know, there's a lot of effort, for example, um, that's going on at the state level and congressional levels and also international levels that aim to um, develop policies to mitigate climate change, you know, effects both for people in terms of thinking about how to protect 
communities that are more threatened by climate change, increasing like seawalls and, and things like that, but then also providing more support for green energy infrastructure and things like that. So I think that's a huge way. Also, like there are things we can do as consumers to try to mitigate this. So for example, I'm involved in an effort called Whale Safe that tries to reduce the occurrence of whales being hit and struck by shipping vessels, which is a huge cause of mortality for whales around the planet. Um, and like I said, with climate change, we're seeing increase, increases in that in new parts of the, of the globe where shipping routes are being established, for example, in the Arctic. And we're actually working with uh, we're starting to work with certain consumer organizations um, and major companies that work with shipping vessels um, to try to create like a certification program for like whale safe shipping. Um, because we know that when ships slow down in high risk areas, the likelihood of striking and killing a whale is really reduced. And so the main thing we need to do there is have ships slow down when they're coming into zones where we know that there's likely to be whales. And we're, we're starting to get some traction with that. I can't really speak too much specifically on it because it's not official, but, um, but if you want to learn more about that whole program, it's called WhaleSafe and you can go to WhaleSafe.com. One other related question, are, are there, you're talking about consumers, but, and so are there better and worse choices about that people can make about the things they buy and the sorts of foods that they consume that will help out? Yeah. So there are a couple of companies that we're working with, like major, major um, consumer distribution places that that we're working with. And again, I, I can't say specifically at this point, but, you know, being able to, to, to show that consumers care about green products, consumers care about fair trade products, or maybe shade grown coffee, things like that, that we know that are better for biodiversity conservation. Um, you know, electric vehicles, for example. I mean, obviously that is incredibly expensive and I'm driving my grandma's uh, 2005 Toyota Camry. So like, but my next car when I can afford it is going to be a um, electric vehicle. You know, so, so I, I think it's really important to acknowledge and recognize that it, it takes a certain level of privilege to even be able to have the choice in how you um, consume products. Um, but if you do have that privilege, then I think that there is, um, there is a lot that, that we can do. And, and what about the scientists? Let's take some responsibility ourselves. Are there tools that would be useful to develop? Are there things coming online that you think hold promise? I mean, obviously, collecting more data, you'd mentioned earlier that uh, examples of mean changes in climate, what effects that's had on the incidence of human wildlife conflict. I mean, that presumably is one area where more data would be more useful. But are there creative ways that people are using surveillance um, or, or anything like that that's helping us to see things better than we did before, recognize problems that weren't getting enough attention? Yes. Oh, my gosh. A hundred percent. I mean, just the, the use, the increasing use of AI, for example, um, UC Berkeley actually is starting an entire new center on the use of AI to solve environmental problems. I mean, AI has been deployed in forests in um, West Africa to try to hear when poachers are in the forests um, and hear gunshots and then transmit that information in real time to wildlife managers. There's similar things like that where, you know, the, the transmission of real-time information to be able to then respond to the new information in a timely manner for the benefit of wildlife conservation is 
is huge. And so, you know, we can also do things like monitor when predators are approaching um, livestock areas. We can do that now in real time and then, and then go out and deploy deterrence. One of the big issues that I'm working on with ship strikes to whales is we actually don't know a lot of the planet where ship strikes to whales is happening. Um, we have a really good sense of that in certain parts of the world where we have lots of eyes, you know, out on the water, but there's huge parts of the world where we just have no data. They're complete black boxes. And so I was recently talking to some researchers who are developing a system for being able to identify whales in, in water just from satellite imagery and processing, processing huge amounts of satellite imagery to detect whales. Right now, I'm a postdoc in my lab and I and, and several others are working on um, just trying to map the global distributions of certain whale species. We don't even know where whales are really at any given time. And so, yeah, we're, this is like a huge effort that we're doing. Um, but, you know, maybe hopefully five years from now, maybe that will be obsolete because we'll be able to detect whales in real time from satellites and, and things like that. So, yeah, I'm really, really excited about about all these technological advances that are yeah, happening. That's really great. We we talked to Martin Wakelski in an earlier episode about uh, the Icarus project and all of the sort of tracking devices that they're developing for, you know, keeping track of where animals go using tiny transmitters that are sending signals to satellites. Super interesting stuff. It's really exciting. And I do a lot of satellite tagging um, in the work that I do. And it's just completely essential to understand, you know, how animals are moving and how they're responding to different things in their environment. And um, so I'm, I'm super excited yeah, about the Icarus yeah, project. Yeah, me too. Well, Brianna, thanks so much for joining us on Big Biology. It's great to have you on and talk these things over. We'd like to end by just asking one sort of really open-ended question that you can take or leave. Uh, is there anything that we haven't asked you that you'd like to say? I don't think so. Your questions are great. I, I'm just, yeah, really, really honored to be on here. So thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like what you hear, let us know via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or give a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't, we'd love to know that too. All feedback is good feedback. On the next episode, we talk to Martha Munoz, an evolutionary biologist at Yale, about how lizards cope with their thermal environments. Martha studies something called the Bogart effect, which describes how behavior buffers natural selection on traits. Because lizards move around in their environments to regulate their body temperatures, they're a particularly intriguing group to study to reveal whether and how behavior can buffer environmental effects on evolutionary fitness. So what we typically do, we typically embed I-button sensors into some other device, the most fun of which are copper lizards. This is copper that has been electroformed into the size and shape of an actual lizard. Thanks to Ruth Demery and Brad Van Paraden for producing the episode, and to Steve Lane, who manages the website. Thank you also to interns Jordan Greer, R.B. Smith, Natasha Damright, and Kyle Smith, who helps with social media and script writing and editing. Keating Shimeri produces our awesome cover art. Thanks also to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. And finally, thanks to the Kenya News Agency for the article on which our introduction to the episode was based. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear and Tieran Costello.